to Matthew chapter 11. Senior pastor has been doing a series on uh, telling others the good news. And this is one of the uh, few times where my standalone actually works with the series that he's doing, yet hopefully not so as to wreck his series. He always, well, always, I think he politely prefers me not touch his series, because he doesn't want to have to fix whatever I mess up when it comes back. So what I'm hoping today, what you can pray for as we go through this, is that this will be a good complement to what he's doing. And that it would fit in well in terms of the theme or the encouragement of what you've been hearing for the last several weeks on Sunday morning. So, having said that, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. You can follow along with me as I read verses 2 through 11. Matthew 11, verse 2. Now, when John, while in prison... Heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not stumble... For blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? So in other words, did you go out to see someone who had just bent to whatever way the wind was blowing? Did you go out to see someone who was weak and impressionable? Jesus said, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And then here's the verse that we want to key in on. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's pray. Father, forgive our prideful hearts for not becoming more humble and more submissive. So that if not on our lips, at least coursing through our heart is the sentiment that he, your son, must increase while we decrease. You do not owe us anything, and yet you have given us everything in your son. Forgive us for not being thankful. Forgive us for not sharing about the riches of Christ with joy and with eagerness. Father, you tell us in your word that there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And so not only do we confess 
how far short we fall as being your witnesses and your messengers, but we also stand very confidently knowing that you have forgiven us all our imperfections, all of our acts of disobedience, even when we know ourselves to be disobedient. Father, may your word now stir our hearts for your glory, for the exaltation of your Son by the power of your Spirit. Amen. We want to ask just a basic question. Who is a great witness? John is sort of the, the hinge or... Not quite the focal point. Jesus is always the focal point. But John is a, is a central character that Jesus uses to communicate a very significant point. And so verse 11 is what we're wanting to look at in terms of what it is that makes John so great. Jesus says, greater than a prophet. And actually goes so far as to say, anyone who has been born of a woman... He didn't do the math. That's everyone. Anyone who is born of a woman, no one has been greater than John. No one. But then, he says, but even the least, most insignificant person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. What does he mean by that? So we're going to start by saying what a great witness is not using what we see here about John, and then we're going to shift and we're going to say what a great witness or who a great witness is. So, if you're following along in the passage or with your notes, a great witness is not, is not, the one, the man, the woman, with an answer to every question. A great witness is not the one with an answer to every question. How do we know this? If John is greater than a prophet, and no one who's ever been born was greater than John, what is John doing at the very beginning of this passage that we read? What is he doing? He's asking questions. One of the things that's important to note, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure, almost certain, that we've used this example maybe in other sermons or lessons or other contexts before about what John is, is struggling with here. One of the things that we, that we stress is the fact that John is asking these questions as he's sitting in prison. And so he's wrestling with disillusionment or there's some sort of doubt. He didn't expect it to, to go this way. But one of the things that's also important for us to understand is that, yes, that's a, that's a very significant part of why John is asking such a basic question to Jesus. Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or should we be looking and waiting for someone else? Like prison has a lot to do with that. But also one of the things that sort of slides under the radar is that in light of Jesus' answer, where Jesus answers John... <coughs> Answers his questions by returning to Scripture and saying, here's evidence and I'm the one. It seems that the reason that John had doubts or had questions, ironically enough, was precisely because he was so convinced and so confident in the truthfulness of the Scriptures. 
By that we mean this. If you hold your place here in Matthew 11, and you turn back to the Old Testament, there are two places that Jesus tries to draw from, both in Isaiah. Isaiah 35 is one, and Isaiah 61 is the other. Isaiah 61 is a little easier to demonstrate what we mean by John's certainty actually producing these questions. So if you hold your place in Matthew 11, and you go back to Isaiah 61... Isaiah 61.1 reads this way. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord, Yahweh, has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. That's one of the phrases that Jesus uses, except in, in our New Testament it says something like to preach uh, the gospel to the poor. That, that's the phrase in Isaiah, bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners... To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and, along with all this proclaiming and preaching, what has he also been sent or anointed to do? And to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. John is absolutely certain that this prophetic statement is going to be brought to pass. By the Lord's anointed king. Absolutely certain. The king is going to come and he's going to do two things. He's going to raise up the weak and the outcast. And he's going to preach good news to the afflicted and the poor. He's going to restore God's people. And he's also then going to turn to the enemies of God's people. And he's going to declare a day of vengeance for them. Not a day of healing, but a day of destruction. And John knows that's going to happen. But he doesn't see it taking place with who he thought was the anointed king. And so now he's got a problem. On the one hand, here's what the scriptures say. The anointed one is going to come and he's going to preach good news and declare a day of vengeance. On the other hand, I have this Jesus over here who is preaching good news, who is raising up and healing the poor and the afflicted and the needy. But I don't see any day of vengeance. And so John, out of his certainty, out of his confidence in what the scriptures have said, actually finds himself now questioning who Jesus is and what he's doing. Point B, one of the things that oftentimes we may not be prepared for as good, strong, Bible-believing, Scripture-trusting Christians, is that the very Scriptures that we turn to for answers sometimes provoke more questions than they do answers. And when we have been tasked as being witnesses or messengers for Christ, that makes us feel very uncomfortable, because if we're going to go and talk about Christ, if someone has, has questions, we feel like we owe them an answer, right? We need to give them an explanation. I find it very encouraging to recognize here that Jesus, in just a moment, is going to praise John and say, He is greater than a prophet. 
There has never been anyone like John. And he says that, and he says that on the heels of John asking the most basic, simple, profound questions about the identity of Jesus. Are you him? That, to me, does not sound like, at least to the natural ear, does not sound like the question of a man who's greater than a prophet. Doesn't sound like a great witness to ask those kinds of questions. Edgewood, take this to heart. Many of you have already wrestled with this when you had children. And you thought you had all the answers that the scripture had to offer about life until your four-year-old came and asked you a question. <laughs> and all of a sudden, all your reading and all your studying and all your learning and all your podcasts and all your books and all goes out the window. And you're fumbling all over yourself like you're a blithering idiot. You can't answer the question. The good thing about your kids growing up, by the way, is that as they get older, you gain a little bit of your respect back. Now it's not a four-year-old who stumps you, it's just a seven-year-old, <laughs> right? And then eventually a high school. But your four-year-old is doing that to you, and then the rest of us know, or others of us know, whether it's a four-year-old or not, the skeptic in the workplace is gonna ask me questions that I can't answer. It's gonna be a question like, if God is so loving, why is there so much suffering? How are you going to answer that? You're going to plumb the depths of God's mind and say, oh, I can tell you that. That's easy. Here's how we reconcile an all-loving, all-compassionate, all-merciful, all-powerful God with all the rampant evil and suffering that's going on in the world. You're not going to be able to do it. People ask you questions. I thought that God wanted this. I thought that Jesus would do this for me, and I found out that he didn't. What happened? Can't answer that question. That's okay. Because a great witness is not, as we see here from John's example, a great witness is not the person with an answer to every question. In fact, if John is something of a measure of what a great witness is, it's actually okay to have questions Amen. and to admit it and to acknowledge it. It's actually okay to admit that to one another, and certainly it's okay to admit that and acknowledge it to God. He already knows anyway, but by all means, let him know that you're confused. It still doesn't take you off the hook. He's still going to use you and use me as a witness, as a messenger. But it's comforting to know that great messengers or witnesses for Christ are not measured by how many questions they can answer, whether it comes from a four-year-old or whether it comes from a skeptic. Another thing a great witness is not. A great witness is not the one with the most success. And we should probably put success in, what, the air quotes, the quotation marks? <clears throat> success in terms of 
what we tend to think of with success. Both John and Jesus, close in age, probably start their public ministries around the age of 30. 30 years, John has been preparing to do what we see him doing in the Gospels. Preaching, preparing the way, calling people to repentance and to faith in the coming Messiah. For 30 years, he comes on the scene. Do you know how long John's ministry lasted? On the short end, it may have been as little as six months. On the long end, probably not more than 12 months. Six months to a year. 30 years growing up preparing, 6 to 12 months of public ministry that John has. After those 6 to 12 months of public ministry, he sits for another 12 months in prison, if we're doing our dating right, somewhere around there. And then what's after prison, after he sits in prison for a year? Execution. Is that success? Six months? To a year of sharing, of telling, of preaching, and then you sit in a cell until a girl gives a dance. She makes a barter with the king to have you kill this pain. What a waste. But Jesus says that that wasted life. That wasted ministry, at least in what it appears to us, 6 to 12 months at most, says that was sufficient to make John greater than a prophet and greater than any person who's ever been born. When God calls us, as his sons and daughters, then, to go and to share the joy that we found in Christ, the treasure that is ours in redemption. It's encouraging to know that God does not measure you. God does not hold you to account for your witness or for your testimony based on any kind of metric like how well you're received, how many converts you win. How long you've been doing a Bible study. How long you've been preaching. How long you've been in this ministry or that ministry. John labors for a year or less and he's dead. And Jesus says there's never been anyone greater than John. How can that be? People listen, take it to heart. Moms and dads. You're working with your kids, how well they respond or how poorly they respond is not pressure that's brought to bear on you. God does not hold you responsible for their response. Your coworker that you're trying to win to Christ, you're praying, you're pleading, you're sharing in any way that you can think of. Whether or not that individual ever turns and bends the knee to Christ is not on your shoulders. 
That's not a burden that you carry. John saw people respond positively, but he also saw a lot of people turn a deaf ear to what he was saying. And he saw himself hated for it. And he saw himself killed for it. A great witness, according to Jesus, is not someone who has an answer to every question. We see that with John because he had questions. It's not someone who has the most success. John was on the scene for just a blip on the radar. And he was gone. So the question becomes then, what is it that makes John so great? What is a great witness according to Jesus? And here's where we have to key in on what Jesus says, on what Jesus measures John and others by. So if you go back to the text, pick up at verse 9, Matthew eleven nine. Jesus says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What made John great was that John could point people to Jesus in a way that no one before him could ever do. A great witness is not someone with all the answers, is not someone with the apparent view of success. A great witness is the one who clearly points others to Jesus. Amen. So here's what Jesus is saying. John is greater than a prophet. No one who's ever been born has been greater than John. Who does that include when he says no one who's ever been born is greater than John? Abraham. Moses. David. Isaiah. Jeremiah. Right? Go on and on and on. John is greater than them, Jesus says. How is John greater than Moses? Moses had 40 years of ministry. Hard ministry, but 40 years. He performed miracles. He went up on the mountain and talked with God as a man speaks with a friend. How can John be greater than Moses? How can John be greater than David? David was the king. He was the one, he was the man after God's own heart. He was the one who founded the dynasty that led to King Jesus coming on the scene. How can John be greater than David? How can he be greater than Isaiah and Jeremiah? And it all comes down to the content and the clarity of the message. Because here's what Moses could do. Moses could give instructions about the Passover lamb and what to do with the Passover lamb. Moses could not show you who the Passover lamb was. Moses could say, there's coming a time when God is going to raise up a prophet from among you like me. Listen to him. But Moses couldn't tell you who that prophet was. David could look ahead and say, 
Because the Lord has promised to set one of my heirs on the throne, I know that I will not rot and decay in the grave. But David could not tell you who that heir was going to be. Isaiah could talk about the servant of the Lord who would come and provide for all the needs of God's people, but he had no idea who the servant was. Jeremiah could talk about the branch that springs up, that blossoms and bears fruit and becomes this huge tree that covers the kingdoms of the earth and that everyone gathers under for shade and comfort and for fruit and for food. He couldn't tell you where to go to find that root or that fruit. As a matter of fact, hold your place here in Matthew and go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. First Peter 1 verses 10 and 11 Peter says As to this salvation The prophets who prophesied Of the grace that would come to you Made careful searches and inquiries Seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Do you hear the, the irony in that? These men are writing about Christ with the spirit of Christ and they don't know who Christ is. John does. Moses can tell you about a Passover lamb. But it takes John coming on the scene to say, Behold the Lamb of God. Hallelujah. David can talk about a king and a kingdom. It takes John to say that the kingdom of God is near. Get ready. His king is coming. Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these prophets can talk about the servant of the Lord and the branch and the kingdom flowering. But it takes John to point to the person who's going to make that happen. Amen. And that is what makes John great. What makes John great as a witness, as a messenger, is not that he has an answer to every question. It's not that he receives a hearing or an audience greater than anyone who ever came before him. Or that he wins more converts or has greater miracles to show for his ministry. John's greatness as a messenger and witness is the fact that John is the first one who can say, there he is. Wow. Hallelujah. And Jesus says, that is what makes a great witness. The ability to point to me. That's why John is greater than a prophet. Because he just doesn't speak and cast shadows forward. He actually points you to the substance. He points you to Christ. Now, here's the twist. All good. Encouraging to hear that. But then Jesus ratchets it up one more 
And he says this back in Matthew 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's all we've been talking about right now. Yet, Jesus goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John is greater than any Old Testament hero. And then Jesus says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than even John. Which means that if the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, they must also be greater than any and every Old Testament hero. Right? Who is least in the kingdom of heaven? You, you've got the answer. <laughs> Us! We count. I count as least. I count as not impressive. I count as unheard of. I count as someone who is going to be dead and forgotten once my last day is spent. Least in the kingdom. Jesus says, least in the kingdom is greater than John. And if greater than John, greater than any Old Testament hero. How is that possible? Well, it's because he's grading, if we can say it that way, he's grading on the same line. If John's greatness as a messenger, as a witness, is to be measured by the clarity and the certainty in which he points to the person of Christ, that must mean then that our being greater than John is also measured in the same way, which means there must be something about our witness and our testimony that in terms of clarity and certainty is greater than even what John has done. So here it is. John can point to Jesus in a way that no Old Testament prophet could and could say, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. There's the, the one who takes away the sin of the world. What John couldn't do, what John couldn't do he couldn't tell you how Jesus was going to do that. Right? John does not conceive of a king who is executed like a state criminal. John does not conceive of a Messiah who suffers as a servant. John does not see any of that. And so when he's sitting in a cell, wondering where the day of vengeance is, why is the king not running through and running rampant over our enemies? And why is he not doing both sides of the coin? Why is he not preaching good news and raising up the weak and the afflicted and bringing righteous judgment on the enemies of God and his people? John cannot make heads or tails of that because he doesn't know that in order to bear sin, in order to declare victory over God's enemies, the eternal son is going to die. The king is going to suffer. We, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, 
we see that with the clarity that comes with that hindsight being 2020, right? We look back on that and we say, that's why. That's why in his first coming he wasn't doing that, John. Ah, I see it. John couldn't see it. So we can point to Jesus clearly, just like John can point to Jesus clearly. But what we can do that John cannot do, we can clarify even further how it is that Jesus was made the sin bearer. Parents of children, as a co-laborer and sufferer, in all the trials and tribulations that come with Christian parenting, one of the reasons, one of the reasons that God has given you your child or your children is so that you can be a witness and a messenger to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Your greatness as a teacher, as uh, an encourager, as a spiritual shepherd is measured by the certainty and the clarity which you point your kids to Jesus. Hallelujah. You don't have to be able to answer all the questions. You don't have to be the epitome of the world's standard of success. When you sit down, for example, and you read to your kids and you read uh, picture Bible, right? Very simple. Little kids picture Bible. So long as you're sitting there with your child, picture Bible open, preschool level, so long as you're pointing to Jesus, Jesus says, you have become a greater witness Grandparents, that goes for you as well. As you have opportunities to interact with your grandchildren and to share with them, to the extent that you point them to the person of Jesus Christ as sin bearer, as king, as resurrected Lord and Savior, to the extent that you do that with simple clarity and confidence, Jesus says, that is greatness. <clears throat> and when we go out to the workplace, whether it's in a cubicle, whether it's with a work team, a group, anything like that, simple, well-placed, timely words that speak to the grace of Christ, is greatness. Psalm 99, 6 says that Moses and Aaron were 
among his priests, the Lord, Yahweh's priests. And Samuel was among those who called on his name. But even when Moses and Aaron and Samuel called on the name of the Lord, they can't call, they could not call on the name of the Lord the way that we call on the name of the Lord. Because we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that is the person that we carry with us. That is the message that we bear. And that is all that we have been tasked to do. Salvation is of the Lord. It is not on your shoulders. It's not on my shoulders to produce the fruit. All we do is point people to Jesus, but all of that is more than sufficient. Let God do the rest of the work. If someone asks you a question, whether they're four years old or whether they're 40 years old in the workplace, and you're stumped, you don't know, Say it. Say so. I don't know. I don't know why this. I don't know how that. But here's what I do know. Amen. I know the one with the answers. I know the one who opens blind eyes. I know the one who heals. I know the one who one day will make all things right. give you him even if I can't give you much else but he's enough how freeing and encouraging it is to know that our father is satisfied and pleased with us by simply pointing people to the son it's all he's called us to do he does the work. He convicts hearts and minds. He brings about light and salvation in the midst of darkness and death. He just calls us to be faithful. And with a humble confidence and certainty on his revelation and his word to point people to the one who has all the answers, who has all of life, who has all of power. And we rest in that and we rejoice in it. Parents, do it in your homes. Men and women, do it in the workplace. Do it at the gas station. Do it at the restaurant. However, however the opportunity arises, point him to Jesus. That's great. Let's pray. Beggars telling another beggar where to find bread. 
blind man join another blind man where we find sight. Father, I pray that for all of us that you would uh, rid us of the fear and the undue pressure that we put on ourselves to have um, a tightly scripted word concerning Christ to win others to salvation. That we would speak clearly and articulately, that we would speak confidently, but that ultimately we would take the truth of this passage. That for all those who point to the Savior clearly and point to his work, that they have become greater than any of the Old Testament prophets or heroes. Because they point to Christ. Father, may that lift the burden off of our shoulders. May it free us to be able to share and bear witness to the power of your Son with joy and with excitement and enthusiasm. And even after doing that, then, turn our hearts to prayer so that we would ask you to do the work in following up on that message that only you can do. That you would take those words and use it by the power of your Spirit to change hearts and lives. Father, all of this work is yours. Thank you for the opportunity, for the privilege, the freedom, the reward of being able to participate in it, to share in the glory of our Savior by pointing others to him.